Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. We're taping again from our library. Um, hope to be back in studio sometime soon. As we tape, we're in mid-April 2020, and hopefully we're on the downslope of the virus, but uh, who knows? Uh, and as we're here and thinking about where we are, thinking about President Trump, he seems to have three enemies he's dealing with. One is the virus itself. The other, of course, long time, political enemies, political enemies. And the third category, I would say, are external enemies, and in particular, uh, China. And the news came out recently, yesterday, in fact, that, in fact, China might have been behind, um, not purposely, but certainly the virus almost certainly originated in Wuhan, and they've done a lot to exploit um, the virus and have plans to exploit it after the virus ends. With me to talk this through and understand where we are today with regard to China, technology, our supply chain issues, are two very, very smart scholars from Heritage Institute, uh, Dean Chang, who um, is a senior research fellow, Asian studies, and oversees most of the Chinese uh, uh, security and uh, uh, economic uh, issues. And also with me is uh, Klon Kitchen, who leads tech policy for Heritage, senior research fellow, uh, Catherine and Shelby Cullen Davis Institute uh, for National Security and Foreign Policy. And so together we're going to talk about the interrelationship of China's strategic aims and um, America's technology policies. Uh, Dean, let's start with you. You've co-authored an excellent uh, assessment of this called Assessing Beijing's Power, a Blueprint for the U.S. Response to China over the Next Decades. Uh, tell, us, uh, tell us where we are. Um, well, I think your viewers and listeners need to understand is that China is a fundamentally different challenge than anything this nation has confronted before. They are not the Soviet Union. They're definitely not Nazi Germany. They're not even Imperial Germany. They're very different for several fundamental uh, reasons. The first is that they're not European. They come from a very different context. Europe was marked by balance of power politics, multiple great powers. Asia has always been dominated for thousands of years by a single hegemon, namely China. China is not a rule of law society. It views the law as simply an instrument for keeping the Chinese Communist Party in power. And finally, China doesn't have civil society. It doesn't have an independent press, that should come as no surprise, but even religion, um, homeowners associations, uh, bowling leagues, Everything has a piece of the Chinese Communist Party within it. And that in turn means that when we interact with Chinese universities, Chinese religious groups, Chinese businesses, they're not private. There is no privacy in that context. They are all subject to the Chinese Communist Party. And that means that we are facing an, a whole of society challenge, whether it's dealing with COVID-19 or whether it's thinking about 5G, and we are dealing with a 
system that frankly views us as a threat, whether we want to view them as a threat or not. Well, in your study uh, assessing Beijing, which, by the way, I highly recommend to uh, my listeners, viewers, uh, first 15 pages of that of that study is probably the best overview of uh, China's history, it, its power structure, and its culture that I've read. I've read a lot on China, and what gets distilled in that uh, in those few pages is some is essential reading for everyone. And just to amplify something you said, Dean. Uh, China doesn't have a rule of law, it has a rule by law, and that the Chinese Communist Party is really not that different from the way China was ruled when the, uh, when the emperors ruled China. Uh, they're Chinese, I mean, we tend to think of the Chinese Communist Party as somehow fundamentally different from the old uh, emperors. And they're, they don't, they're not thinking of themselves as gods uh, or things like that. But the reality is that there was never, you know, 5,000 years of Chinese history never saw the development of democracy, hmm. never saw the development of an independent judiciary. The Chinese Communist Party happily continues those traditions, uh, which obviously from our perspective are not good things, um, and carries that forward. It also, as I said, the Chinese empires dominated Asia. All of the neighbors understood their place, that they were tributary states. And China's regime today is clearly treating its neighbors, Vietnam, the Philippines, uh, Korea, as appendages, as tributary states. And it would very much like to see Japan and, frankly, probably even the United States do the same thing. Kalan, the, 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 the rival we, we have with China seems to be in some ways fundamentally different from, uh, say, the rival we had with the Soviet Union or any other great powers, and that uh, we are so interdependent with China. Most of our major uh, manufacturing supply chain technologies that uh, we, uh, we, we deal with today are not, not just in the United States, but increasingly in China. What's the, what's the nature of our relationship uh, in terms of technology development, manufacturing, supply chain, et cetera? Yeah, it's interesting. I think one of the things that, that I've noticed as the United States tries to engage China is we're hesitant to recognize some of the similarities of previous confrontations that we've had, while also being hesitant to understand some of the, the dissimilarities uh, that, that Dean has identified. So on the similarity side, in terms of like the Cold War, I do think it's important to recognize that what we actually have is an emerging confrontation between two philosophies of government and approaches to governance in general. So obviously with the United States, we have a liberal democratic order um, that uh, emphasizes and, and I think maximizes the opportunity for human thriving. But what China is pioneering and I think ultimately going to try to ex uh, export is a governance model um, enabled by technology that promises the uh, economic benefits of capitalism coupled with the government's stability and security of authoritarianism. And they are beginning to lean heavily on their technology sector, both economically and as a kind of a tool to enable the type of techno totalitarianism. And if they're able to um, master that, that that model of governance, 
I think it could easily become the chief export along the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, now, one of the interesting things about that, so that's the similarities of previous confrontations. But unlike any previous confrontation that the United States has faced, and, and Dean and, and you, Bill, have, have made this point already, is that we were never as deeply integrated with, a, uh, a, with an oppositional government the way we are with China. So uh, our, our dependency, frankly, um, on, a, on a whole host of, of industries on China um, up until pre-COVID-19, we tended to focus on advanced manufacturing and technology. Um, in the wake of COVID-19, and even in the midst of COVID-19, uh, those concerns have expanded to uh, personal protective uh, equipment, PPE, as well as um, precursor chemicals for a significant portion, if not the majority, of uh, medicines. And so that is a key challenge. We have simultaneously this essentially conflict of, of worldviews that's coming into place uh, precisely at a moment when economically we're more interdependent than ever before. And that's creating some real complexities that the United States is frankly struggling to, uh, to navigate. Did China launch this uh, virus uh, into the world mm -hmm. on purpose or is China simply exploiting it to its advantages? Dean? I think that um, there is no evidence that the Chinese somehow uh, created and released this uh, into the world. I think that, that unfortunately, there's a lot of conspiracy theory going on uh, about that. Uh, the scientists that, that I've talked to and have read all indicate that the markers are of a naturally evolving virus. Um, and in terms of as a bioweapon, um, frankly, there are much better candidates out there. Um, ironically, however, uh, the fact that China is an opaque system, the fact that it lacks a free press, and that the Chinese Communist Party's first reaction was to suppress information has created uh, fertile ground for all sorts of rumor mongering. Um, Inevitably, when you create a vacuum, something rushes in to fill it. And in this case, it is a lot of theories um, that uh, some of which are, are outlandish, some of which may even be plausible. Uh, the possibility that perhaps this escaped from a lab where it was being researched. Um, but the Chinese have done themselves no favors by basically shutting down all inquiries and providing no good information. Well, you talk about in your in your paper the political the three warfares that China engages in psychological, political, um, what the like thinking what the third one is public opinion warfare public opinion uh, it, is this part of their warfare? Yes. So, regardless of where this virus came from, the Chinese are very good at facing the world as it is, not as they'd like it to be, and so they are they are employing political warfare, including these three warfares, to try and shape and mold three audiences, the Chinese domestic audience, to make the point, this isn't the CCP's fault. The American and Western audiences, hey, we're a good partner. Uh, when you build out your 5G networks, keep that in mind. We're providing aid, quote unquote, to various countries, although in many cases that aid is actually paid for PPE. And finally, the rest of the world, while we are very focused on dealing with this pandemic in our respective countries, the Chinese are very clearly already trying to shape how 
everyone on the planet is going to look at China, that China is helpful. China has been open. The WHO has endorsed China. Um, all of this is part of that public opinion warfare of shaping and molding, not just governments, but popular opinion of, aren't the Chinese good, friendly, cool, and don't we want to work with them, especially once we all emerge from lockdown? Now, I assume you're being facetious. On which? In terms point? of their, their kindly intentions and how uh, it, it, this, is, this is more posturing than substance, is it not? Or Yes. No, this is very much the perception that they are trying to inculcate. Yeah. But you can't deny that you know, the Chinese have been masterful. They jumped, for example, Italy was complaining about how Europe, the rest of Europe, was not providing them with aid um, as their uh, body count was spiraling. And the Chinese jumped on that immediately. You saw pl uh, videos of Chinese doctors getting out at Rome and shipments of what was presented as aid. Now, as I said, this was PPE that Italy had already paid for. But the global public opinion that they're trying to shape, and I hate to say this, but the American press has openly aided and abetted the Chinese. When the New York Times is publishing op-eds that could have been written in Beijing with a title like, Beijing bought us time, the West squandered it. I mean, you have to start wondering sort of, of how, you know, the Chinese are coming across to everyone. Uh, Klein, you in the technology area, you've done some research in terms of our medical supplies and, and supply chain issues. I had Rosemary Gibson, Gibson on recently. We talked about the fact that we've lost our manufacturing capabilities for aspirin, penicillin, and a lot of essential antibiotics. Uh, are you familiar with what they're doing in these labs, like the one in Wuhan, and how that fits into their their uh, strategic aims uh, to develop medicines and vaccines, et cetera? Well, so I think with the Wuhan strategy, it, it was supposed to be a bio level four, um, which is the highest level uh, of a research, uh, biological, uh, virological research facility. The United States has some of these uh, as well. Um, I, from, from the reporting that's going on, I mean, Dean makes the point that the opacity of the Beijing government makes this very difficult to move beyond conjecture, right? The fact that the Chinese government has one of these uh, facilities is not surprising. There are legitimate reasons why they would have that, particularly regarding the, the, the country's history on uh, pandemic, uh, pandemic viruses and, and, and other public health concerns. Uh, it wouldn't be surprising. In fact, I'm very confident that they have um, similar research that's ongoing for national security purposes uh, and and the Chinese chemical biological warfare capability is I think well understood uh, within the national security intelligence community. Um, as Dean said, I don't think there's any indication in anything that we've seen that would suggest that it was deliberately cultivated and released. Um, I don't know that the Wuhan research facility has any direct uh, tie in to the nation's kind of larger medicinal manufacturing uh, infrastructure. I think it would be a, uh, a contributory capability and a supplemental capability, but there's nothing that indicates that it's somehow associated with the medicinal side of what's going on. Well, you, you co-authored a major report that talked about our the, America's strategic uh, military uh, position right now and found some real I think deficiencies in it. I think the things that got a low rank were supply chain and and issues related to uh, ability to control manufacturing of key 
essential uh, military items. Did you also look at the at the drug chain as part of that? So it wasn't a part of the of the study uh, specifically, but I think many of the same trends that we discovered in the defense industrial base would translate into um, you know what we call the medical industrial base as well. And that's because the reality is, and and, and I want to be clear that what I'm about to describe has occurred not out of any sense of malfeasance, not out of any sense of of kind of foolishness or anything like that. There have been real market efficiencies that have driven these decisions, and. It is inarguable to say that the United States um, public, it has absolutely benefited from many of this, these, these efficiencies over the last you know, three decades. But the reality is, is that we have outsourced uh, significant portions of virtually every supply chain to China. Uh, and the reason we've done that is because uh, Chinese industrial base, heavily in, uh, supported by the Chinese government, has become essentially the center of gravity for the world for basic manufacturing and um, and development. And it's offered uh, companies who have fiduciary responsibilities to uh, maximize returns on investment, uh, to produce goods and services at a much more uh, cost-effective way than was available in the United States or, or elsewhere. That is absolutely true. And again, it, it is true that over the last three decades, four decades, um, American consumers have benefited from that, right? The cost of prescription drugs have been significantly lower um, because that was the case. Having said all that, we are now recognizing some of the larger strategic costs yeah. of those choices and are now having to face the reality of were those kind of short to midterm uh, benefits that were, were realized, were they ultimately worth it strategically? Because in the midst of the COVID-19 um, outbreak, there was a, uh, an op-ed in the state-run Xinhua um, uh, newspaper. Uh, and you know, a, an, an author said that China should cut off PPE and uh, medical precursor um, chemicals from the United States and cast them, quote, into the ocean of, of coronavirus. Now, regardless of whether that individual actually represented anyone of the Chinese government or not, the point is, is that the threat he made was, in fact, a threat that the Chinese government could keep if they so chose. And so any rational government would obviously ask themselves, should we allow a foreign government, particularly one that has shown indications of hostility or at least of being a strategic challenger, should they have that capacity to leverage us that way? And you know, this is where the point that we made previously, that unlike any other nation that we've confronted before, that deep economic integration, that's where that, that calculus becomes much more difficult than it has been in the past. Which, which, which is just makes us wildly complicated. And, you know, my short answer to this, I'd rather pay more for drugs and know where they're manufactured. And so I think that paradigm may be increasingly shared by other people. Um, but it is going to change the economics of drugs and a lot of other things we buy in this country. Now, when we talk about China, though, Dean, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to fall into just talking monolithic. You know, China's not a monolith. It's a billion three population. Uh, and, you know, not, you know, some of my best friends are Chinese. I mean, it's just uh, it's just not that simple that we've got this country that's a billion three of terrible people. And and we were talking, Dean, earlier. You you know your parents, uh, 
came to the United States when I think you were born in New York City in 19 in the 1950s and your father got here by swimming uh, what he escaped in a, under a boat from uh, China in uh, 1940 1951 uh, yes he swam to a fishing boat so it, when we talking about the Chinese people or China is that the Chinese, it seems to me we're talking about the Chinese Communist Party. And we've got 90 million people, though, so it's not a small element in their, uh, in China. How, how, uh, <clears throat> how much does Xi have a whip hand on, on China, the, the, the Politburo, so on and so forth? And is what they're currently doing likely to continue for decades, or is this something that's a, that's a feature of the current political leadership? Well, certainly, when we are talking about 1.3 billion people, it's always dangerous to generalize. It's generally dangerous to generalize anyway. Um, but, but we uh, all do it. <laughs> correct. Um, and when people say China does X, or America does Y, or Germany right. does Z, we are saying the government of these respective countries are undertaking things and not individual citizens, whether they're in Portland, uh, Breslau, or, or Moscow. But the reality is that China is ruled by the Chinese Communist Party. And the Chinese Communist Party isn't very communist anymore in the sense of from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. But they are still very much a Leninist party, a vanguard party, the sole source of political power within a China where they have systematically tried to stamp out civil society. So Xi Jinping, as head of the Chinese Communist Party, supported by the Politburo Standing Committee, which is only about seven people, yeah. um, and which he dominates much more than any of his predecessors since at least Deng Xiaoping, absolutely has an ability to set a course for China in a way that doesn't subject itself nearly as much to internal politics. Um, I think it's safe to say that there is no Chinese media comparable to Jim Acosta, uh, <laughs> or uh, you know that the head they of don't, the they don't even have Twitter accounts. <laughs> uh, that's that's right. Um, you know, the Chinese no... media is not going to hold Xi Jinping accountable in yeah. anything like the way the American media does. Neither is the Chinese state legislature, the National People's Congress, anywhere as I mean, there is no Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell for that. So Xi Jinping, plus certain other key leaders, absolutely could do what Klan said they could think about doing, which is to say, if they wanted to, could they impose limits on the export of medical equipment? Absolutely. And we have seen, and this is important, the Chinese do exactly that with rare earths. In 2010, Xi's predecessor pretty much said, we're not going to sell rare earths to Japan and maybe nobody else, and could make that stick in a way that would be m much more difficult, if not just about impossible without you know, a state of emergency for the United States. And so that's when, you talk, when you talk about vanguard leadership, that's, that's the Leninist term where you had a few, a handful of elites in the vanguard and they were in charge completely. And unless you're in the vanguard, uh, you had virtually no political power or other kinds of power. Is that, is that the way you would define it? Yes, that's exactly how I would define it. And once upon a time, only about 20 or so years ago, there was this hope that, but as China's business elite became wealthier and moved into the party and were welcomed into the party, 
that maybe they would have a moderating influence. Instead, what we have seen, and this has occurred right now with uh, COVID-19, is in fact the hunting down and arrest of Chinese uh, oligarchs and billionaires and millionaires because they represent a potential threat to Xi Jinping. Ren Zicheng, a, a leading Chinese media figure, mm -hmm. actually has disappeared because he had the courage or uh, foolishness uh, yeah. to write a letter saying basically Xi Jinping's response to COVID-19 has been catastrophic. Well, Klon, you coined a term, I don't know whether you made it up, but I love it, uh, techno-totalitarianism. And is that, uh, I mean, that's the social credit system, it's the, it's the facial recognition system, it's what are the elements of their, uh, uh, their, their techno-totalitarianism? Which yeah, I think well, bears on bears on Dean's point about the, the the absolute whip hand that the leadership has there. Well, so yeah, I think I can just build on on the the Leninism argument, right? So, part and partial to the Leninist model, in addition to having a vanguard, the reason you have a vanguard is because the general population isn't kind of smart enough or powerful enough to enact the vision of government that the that that the Leninists hold, right? It has to be managed because there are too many competing interests otherwise. And so what has, um, I think, mitigated the, the ability of, of Leninist governments in the past to actually exercise their vision is just a general lack of capacity to kind of have enough knowledge and enough influence and power to kind of exercise their vision, right? So you think economically, um, there's just so many variables that, uh, that prevent kind of general strategic knowledge of an economy for a Leninist to actually exercise their you know, supposed wisdom. Well, the the theory, I think, behind a techno-totalitarianism is that perhaps with modern technologies like artificial intelligence and, and all of its kind of sub-disciplines, machine learning and that kind of thing, coupled with the general digitization of information, are we entering an era where the state will have access to capabilities that will enable the type of awareness and knowledge and management that has previously escaped them, right? So when we think about things like the, uh, the social credit score, there's a couple of technologies that are coalescing uh, that enable a level of awareness and surveillance and knowledge that was just unknown before. So you have facial recognition technology, you have machine learning, that can sit on top of everybody's purchases, uh, everybody's movements, uh, even the, the content of their communications on things like WeChat, right? So the, the Chinese government is, is trying to build a governance model that, yeah, I'm calling techno-totalitarianism. I don't think I'm the only one who's used that term. Um, we'll, we'll give it to you. Yeah, but, but that, that banks on being able to collect, being able to... Um, understand, being able to exploit, being able to leverage, and then ultimately being able to shape all of that human activity. And all of that was just not available to previous governments. But now in the modern age, they're betting that it is. Well, then that spills over into their, their, their international ambitions, and particularly their, 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 in, their interest in influencing you know, the United States public opinion. And I think what the question I have is that you know, why isn't this global pandemic no longer called the Wuhan virus? Uh, you know, the previous diseases, Ebola, Zika, West Nile, Lyme, uh, Spanish flu, were all named from the places where they emerged, which is 
been the convention, yet this has now been renamed. And I also learned that uh, China, through its Facebook account, I think they've got something called China's Global Times, which has 52 million followers on Facebook. By comparison, New York Times has only about 17 million. They've been systematically running ads talking about how this, anybody attempting to call this the Wuhan virus is racist and influencing public opinion in the United States to deflect uh, um, blame on, uh, on China. I guess, uh, Dean, this is part of your, your psychological, political, uh, uh, social warfare? warfare? Uh, public opinion warfare. Public opinion warfare. Uh, absolutely. Um, so naming conventions are difficult. Uh, avian flu was H5N1. Um, so there have been some efforts to try and sort of standardize uh, and, and uh, generalize naming conventions beyond specific locations. But what is more important here is that the Chinese absolutely want to distance themselves from this disease, which is why it's one thing to talk about how you name it. It's something else to talk about whether it came out of China at all. And it is not an accident that the Chinese who don't allow Twitter in China, nonetheless have Twitter accounts for their foreign ministry spokespeople because that's aimed at outside China. And it was on one of those accounts that the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson threw out there the idea of, well, you, we don't know, maybe it came from the US military. Now, this kind of misrepresentation, uh, some people might call it even a lie, has a long and pedigreed history. Because if you look at the Korean War, the Chinese and their Soviet and North Korean partners went around claiming that the West, namely the United States, had engaged in biological warfare in Korea against the North Koreans and the Chinese. Um, and so this, you know, the fact that the Chinese would now start throwing around these accusations, even as they're simultaneously saying, but you shouldn't ever refer to it as Wuhan flu or Chinese coronavirus gives you an idea, one, about how they are happy to live with the double standard, and two, that they are definitely trying to shape a blame narrative, which is going to be about the United States, and third, that China is the victim, and not the victim of, the, of Xi Jinping or the Chinese Communist Party, of course, but of the West. Well, has, has, over, has China overplayed its hand in the last few years? I remember... One of the earlier, I think it was Ding, um, had a had a strategy called uh, build and abide or something like that, where China was going to build its strategic capabilities but not really reveal their intentions to the world. And yet what they've done in the last few years with China 2025 and with the Belt and Road Initiative is they've really announced, look, we are going to be a player, and they've announced that they want to be the dominant manufacturer, innovator, and 17 strategic industries, um, they really put the world on notice in a way that I think uh, increasingly people, they're, they're engendering a lot of hostility because of it. And so maybe this, this political strategy is not as smart as it uh, appears at face value. Well, certainly um, the strategy of bide your time um, and never take the lead, which was Deng Xiaoping's, one of Deng Xiaoping's catchphrases, um, began to fall by the wayside, actually uh, under Hu Jintao, Xi's predecessor. Um, it's hard to be the number two GDP in the world 
uh, one of the most populous countries, a member of the UN Permanent Five, uh, host of the Olympics, etc., and yet somehow be a shrinking violet. And even if you wanted to, the Chinese population, not yeah. that there are votes or polls, but more and more, the younger generation, which has grown up in a world where China kept going from victory to victory and advancement to advancement, not unreasonably was asking, why do we take a backseat? Why shouldn't we be more assertive in shaping the world? Um, Xi Jinping is uh, both a beneficiary of this, but also he has to be wary of not coming across as defending China's interests. And in this regard, um, you now see where reach and grasp don't quite align. Mm -hmm. China isn't exporting malfunctioning PPE to Spain and Turkey and Italy on purpose. The scary part is they're probably shipping stuff that might have actually been better inspected. So you have to wonder how good the PPE is back in China. Um, and that's the sort of story that a investigative press might well highlight if you had an adversarial press. But of course, in China, you don't. Um, might be something for Western press to focus on. But I gather that the uh, White House uh, press conferences are much better fodder for CNN than uh, doing investigative work into whether Chinese PPE works in China. Klon, uh, in, in terms of their initiative to dominate uh, these, these key industries in manufacturing and R&D and innovation, I know we're not going to, well, it's hard not to generalize, but I, I will. I mean, how are they doing? Is it, are they making progress on all fronts? Is this something that 10 years from now they will have achieved uh, their objectives? We're, where do you, uh, I know I don't have, I know we don't have futurist in your title at, uh, at Heritage, but uh, maybe we could give that a try. Yeah, so I'm just going to pick right up where, where Dean was in the sense of, I think for uh, a, a great deal of, of time, China was, uh, and, and Xi Jinping particularly, was trying to kind of abide in the background, or at least not explicitly advertise uh, some of their aims, but there came a point where China made the very rational conclusion that to amass and wield the level of, of global influence that they were aspiring to required them leading in, in their Made in China 2025 strategy. They needed to lead in 10 key industries. Well, you can't passively, aggressively, kind of quietly in the shadows lead in 10 key technological industries. If you're going to go head to head with the with the United States, that requires a level of assertiveness and upfront, and uh, and the type of actions that are going to be perceived and understood. Uh, now, interesting. So, and that's why they came out with their strategy, and that's why she essentially needed to kind of rally the Chinese nation, both politically and just kind of the general population, toward those strategic aims, because that's the type of it takes a national effort to achieve that level of leadership and capacity. Now, in the wake of that, when they did that, that caught the United States' attention. And that's when the United States kind of shook itself out of its economic stupor and realized, wait a minute, this is something that we need to engage. And, in, and since then, you've seen China kind of turn down the volume on those specific aims, not give them up, but the way they talk about them, uh, the way they promote them uh, has been uh, kind of blunted. So up until, I think, frankly, I would say the the COVID-19 crisis, 
I would say that, that China was continuing generally to move forward along those initiatives um, and to make material and incremental progress and that the United States was frankly just kind of uh, flummoxed by this, uh, um, this integration problem that we've talked about previously. With 5G and then with coronavirus, I do think that that has decisively changed the conversation in the United States. So 5G, we realized, wait a minute, this is a, this is a major problem because we're talking about what's going to effectively be the central nervous system of the new economy. We don't have a viable alternative and neither does Europe. And so, wow, we've got to figure this out. And then COVID-19 hits and you have the, the kind of threats about cutting off uh, the US from critical materials necessary for saving American lives. And I think that has also changed opinions or is changing opinions in the United Kingdom, France, Germany, as they've seen China seek to leverage their geopolitical influence to force people to change. Uh, and I, and you know, the point that we've been making to our, our European allies is like, look, if they're willing to do this on PPE, if they're willing to do this on you know, what you call this virus, do you think that they're gonna be willing to leverage their position on 5G? Certainly they are. Sure. And so I think I think that is actually beginning to shift the conversation now to what degree I think remains to be seen. But it's certainly the point that in the United States, we're going to be pushing on this because the realities of it are just becoming inescapable. Well, when, certainly it's going to be difficult, but when, it's something that cannot be left unaddressed. When Dean said when we talk about China, we're talking about the Chinese government. We talk about America. We're talking about the American government. Uh, but this conversation begs the question of whether the United States is a free market liberal democracy generally uh, can compete with the, with the China that's so focused and increasingly is, is becoming innovative in some of these key technologies. Uh, does, does the United States need an industrial policy to, to, to pull things together and to, and to have strategic? I'm, I'm, I'm viscerally opposed to that idea as a free market uh, um, ec economic guy, but uh, is the time come where we need to have that conversation? Dean? So I remember when there was this rising power coming out of the East that clearly just had a superior approach to technology, <laughs> to innovation, to all of the rest. And we were all going to be speaking Japanese. Uh, Paul Decker was going to be chasing, uh, you know, androids in a Japanified Los Angeles and Blade Runner um, and the like. And it was clear that we needed an industrial policy and consensus based leadership uh, and corporations that just didn't focus on that bottom line because Japan had such a superior approach. And here we are 40 years later, and Japan has been, we used to talk about a lost decade for Japan's economy and industry. And now I think people are talking about a lost quarter century. Um, do the Chinese have advantages because of central direction, state policy, et cetera? Absolutely. Not least of which is they can set a goal and they have programmatic and funding stability. Uh, you look at their space program compared to ours. But at the same time, it's very hard to correct mistakes. And all you have to do is look at Chinese ghost cities, which some people think are a sign of success. But if you understand economics, 
That is an enormous amount of wasted material, energy, finance, labor, etc. So is industrial policy the right answer? My personal opinion, no. Good. Do we need to have better coordination between the private and public sector? Yes. Do we have a private sector that operates almost as opaquely as the Chinese, one where you will oppose cooperating with the American Department of Defense, which is subject to law and press and other uh, coverage, but will happily cooperate with China in building a censored search engine? And by the way, your corporate uh, moniker says are we are we speaking no of, are we speaking of google uh, of course they won't do business with their own defense department right exactly um so i think that there are a whole lot of issues in our own system that need addressing yeah. i'm not sure that an industrial policy would get at any of that but i do think that what we do need if we're going to tap into the strength that is private enterprise individual choice innovation self-correction is probably you know, better coordination and conversation between government and the private sector. Well, and I wish we had more serious people in government having this conversation and talking about what we ought to be doing. Uh, unfortunately, the, the political struggles we're in right now seem to make serious conversation about this sort of thing verboten. Uh, we, we're about out of time. Claude, do you want to give us your thoughts on, on how, how the United States can compete effectively and how we ought to uh, deal with this? Sure. Uh, so I, I'm going to preface my comments by saying that there's perhaps no other scholar at Heritage that I respect more and enjoy working with more than Dean. And I'm going to push in on his on his Japan uh, argument. Good. I was going to do that, too. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> if I adopt that same logic, then I could easily say, uh, you know, there used to be a whole lot of concern and worry about the Soviet Union launching nuclear weapons and obliterating the United States. And we oriented our entire foreign policy around that. And we did all these actions. And you know what? Lo and behold, it never happened. Therefore, anybody who argues that Iran is a nuclear threat is just falling into the same trap and we shouldn't take action on that. It's, it, it's a literal fallacy to say that it didn't happen then, therefore it won't happen now. Um, and what I want to say on the question about industrial policy is, well, it depends on what you mean. Right. So if you're saying, do I believe in a do I think that the United States should try to out China, the Chinese government? No, obviously right. not. Right. But if you're asking. So, for example, we have kicked a free market company out of the United States, Huawei, and said, you cannot provide 5G infrastructure in the United States. And we have national security rationales for that. Is that industrial policy? Because uh, if it is, well, then, yeah, I think we should have that because I think I'm a free, mar I'm a free market capitalist, mm -hmm. but I'm not suicidal. And I want to say that free market capitalism is not an ends. It's a means to an ends. And the ends is human thriving, particularly American human thriving. And so I think that the government should engage in these questions in ways that are completely consistent with our Constitution. I think our Constitution allows for this type of wisdom and prudence. But the reality is, is that it's easy to dismiss industrial policy when we think that national security is relegated to only like who makes our tanks, who makes our bombers, who makes our nuclear weapons. But the reality is, is that in the modern age, artificial intelligence is the new tank and it's the new nuclear weapon and it's the new plane. And it's also what we're just using for general commerce. It's literally the next generation of a general purpose technology. 
And so who makes it and how it's made, and particularly when we start thinking about advanced microprocessors, matters. And so the government has a conversation now. Again, I'm not advocating for any type of managed economy, but it's just a reality that the federal government and private industry not only need to have a more thorough conversation, but that industry has been resistant to that. What has prevented us from being where we need to be and that we need to get better at this. I so agree. Well, as usual, we've launched the stage for our next show. You've got 50 recommendations, Dean, in your report. And, Klein, you've got an equal number in your military preparedness report. So I'd like to come back and talk about lines of action uh, for our next show. And, Dean, my only uh, the, the, the pushback, I was written, I was reading a guy who wrote very, I think, uh, cogently, says, China's a continent-sized power, significant natural resources, and three times, four times the population in the United States, located in the most economically vibrant region of the world, global center, center of global economic activity, blah, blah, blah. I think Dean Chang wrote that sentence, and so I would just say that China, to me, represents a far greater threat than Japan was because of all those, uh, all the resources it has that Japan didn't. So... It's my show. I get the last word on that one, <laughs> and I'd love to have you come back. And I'd really love to get into lines of action because we are going to need them. And I don't think there's enough conversation about where we go after this virus. And so, both Klon and Dean, I thank you. And uh, we've been here with uh, Klon Kitchen and uh, Dean Chang, both of the senior fellows at Heritage Foundation, uh, some of the brightest minds on our, our geostrategic geo economic thinking. And uh, Hope to have him back and hope to have you back for, uh, for our next conversation. So thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for watching. You can find us on uh, YouTube and all the major podcast platforms. And so uh, see you next time. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes.